kisses every day, hugs and kisses every day. I love my family. I love my family. Good morning, and welcome back to the White Coat Underground. This is our fourth podcast and the first of the new year. As you can hear, we have finally found a theme song, and this one does not appear to violate any national, state, or municipal laws. And just to remind you who you're listening to, my name is Peter Lipson. I am an internist in the Midwestern United States. I'm also a blogger, and I write for scienceblogs.com slash denialism, and also for sciencebasedmedicine.com. And while we may have found a theme song, we still do not have a sponsor. So if you like this podcast, you're going to have to make it more popular. This would seem counterintuitive as it will increase my bandwidth needs. However, Perhaps if you go to iTunes and give a positive review, a sponsor will someday glance upon my work and decide to give me a little bit of cash to keep this going. In any event, let me start with today's breakfast update. Today, the offspring asked for daddy waffles, which means waffles from scratch. These were promptly delivered and enjoyed by all. They were served with real maple syrup from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I did drink coffee. The offspring did drink milk. You know, I thought the idea of a post-podcast discussion on a forum would be brilliant. And perhaps it was a brilliant idea, however, it hasn't been a successful idea. One of the ways I decided to help fund my bandwidth needs was to put up a discussion board, put some AdSense advertising on it, and just let things go there. Well, I built it, but they didn't come, and that's okay. So I got the idea today that I just won't even give out the address of the form. But then I thought, huh, the one time I don't give out the address is going to be the one time when everybody's going to want to discuss the show. Both of you. And it's just this kind of superstitious thinking that people are so prone to. You see, people are great at pattern recognition. And we take what we see in our environment and we recognize patterns in them, even when these patterns are meaningless. Sure, that may be Mary Mother of God in my French toast. And those chicken bones I just threw on the ground may show the future pattern of my life. Or maybe it's just an old piece of French toast and some chicken bones. And I think one of the reasons that people are so willing to embrace implausible medical ideas is the same reason We are attracted to patterns. We like to think that if X followed Y at one point, then it's sure going to happen again. We have some control over the process. So let's explore the divisions of complementary and alternative medicine and see what it is that makes them so attractive and makes me so darn close-minded. For me, in my close-mindedness, it's actually a rather simple division, which I'll tell you about, but I will tell you that I'll give the address to the forum at the end of the show, just in case. So in medicine, there's basically three different levels of knowledge. There's that which has been tested and shown to be effective. There's that which is testable and might plausibly be true. And then there's everything else. When you look at it in this closed-minded way, you see that the stuff in the everything else category is pretty much all the same. So, for instance, something like Reiki, which is the manipulation of mysterious energy fields in the human body, is no more likely to work than, say, casting lots. 
Now that second category, that category that includes things that are at least plausible if not yet proved, is an interesting category and does contain a decent amount of gray. The nice thing though about that category is if you have an idea, seems plausible, toss it in there. Let's see what happens. And this is where I get a little bit annoyed with some of the adherence to less plausible medical claims. You see, once they toss it in that category, no matter how much evidence is accumulated that shows that the practice doesn't work, they're unwilling to abandon it. Of course, once a procedure or a medical intervention is found to work, it rapidly makes its way into category one and is no longer alternative. The orthodoxy in medicine used to be that beta blockers were not a good idea in heart failure. They would worsen heart failure. Somebody had the idea that hmm, maybe beta blockers are actually good for heart failure. Maybe by reducing adrenergic tone, they'll help prevent sudden death. That was a radical idea, but it had a patina of plausibility. It was put to the test. It was verified by many clinical trials, and now beta blockers are standard in the treatment of heart failure. Something that seemed bizarre and alternative is now what we do every day. In contrast, it used to be standard practice to give lidocaine to patients who had had a myocardial infarction. This drug would prevent many of the arrhythmias seen on the heart monitor in these patients. When it was finally subjected to rigorous trials, it was found that actually lidocaine increased mortality. Therefore, the practice was abandoned. But take a, an implausible medical claim like homeopathy. Just to review, homeopathy is the 19th century idea that if you magically shake up water and dilute it to the point that nothing is left in it but you know, water, that it will have some sort of magical healing properties. This idea has been roundly laughed out of the room, but also subjected to randomized control trials in which it has been shown to be useless, unless, of course, you're thirsty. But that hasn't stopped people from promoting homeopathy. And they come up with one of the most annoying excuses. That excuse tends to be that we just don't know how to look at it. We don't know how to prove it yet. And it's here that I run into some of my biggest difficulties in discussing alternative medicine with very intelligent and educated people. It's the argument of, gee, maybe it just works in a way that we haven't thought of yet. Maybe there isn't a way to measure it within our conventional way of thinking. My impolite answer to that is bollocks. If you can't measure an effect, then how can an effect be said to even exist? This may seem like just a bunch of semantics, but really nothing could be more important in treating actual human beings. If I'm going to send my patient for a session of body energy manipulation, I need to think that there's a good chance that this might help the patient feel better. And how will I know if the patient feels better? Well, they'll tell me they feel better. In other words, there's a measurable effect. If I ask them before how they feel and they say lousy, that's point one. If I ask them afterwards how they feel and they say great, that's data point two. Admittedly, it's not a great trial, but it is a trial. There's data. We have measured something. So when proponents of improbable medical practices claim that we just don't know how to measure something yet, they're simply not telling the truth. They're claiming that their practices make people feel better. That's a measurement. 
So let's dispense once and for all with this false claim that some practices just aren't measurable, that we just don't have the way of thinking yet that would get us to the point where we'd be able to understand the mysteries. The fact is, if you're going to mess with someone's life, if you are going to intervene in their health, you better have a damn good idea that you're doing something to the benefit of the patient. And going to superstition to help find that benefit is never acceptable. This particular process is often referred to as methodological naturalism. This is a philosophy that says that when investigating various processes, it is never wise to invoke a supernatural cause for natural processes. And since we don't know of any processes that are unnatural, then it never helps to invoke the supernatural. So going back to, say, Reiki, that mysterious manipulation of mysterious bodily energy fields, the only way to explain Reiki is by invoking something that is supernatural. There are no energy fields that Reiki affects that we've ever been able to measure or observe in any way, and there is no particular scientific reason to expect that there might even be such a thing. Given that the claim is improbable, given that there's no scientific basis for it in the natural world, and given that the natural world is the only one that we have, it is unethical to offer a patient this intervention. You want to make them feel good? You want them to sit in a dark room and relax? Get them a massage. Now, there are some out there who might be what uh, Dr. Val Jones calls a shruggy. I'll give you a link to her explanation for the term. But basically, it refers to a person whose attitude toward alternative medicine is one of, well, sure, it sounds crazy, but what could it hurt? Well, aside from some of the obvious reasons why it could hurt, for instance, encouraging patients to seek out alternative care in place of real care, there are some real-world economic implications. Uh, Health insurance often covers unconventional medical practices that are unproved and that are implausible, such as chiropractic, Reiki, homeopathy. This is at a time when our healthcare dollars are certainly better spent elsewhere. Every time I have a patient who is turned down for a test or treatment that they truly need, I am infuriated that insurance companies will actually pay for something as ridiculous as homeopathy or chiropractic. So let me sum up the reasons for my being such a close-minded individual instead of a shruggy. When dealing with real people who have real bodies and real problems, we can only judge a treatment or any type of intervention by what changes are observable in the patient. Even the alternative medicine people will admit that, even if they do so quietly. If no observable change happens, then the most logical explanation is the intervention doesn't work. If no observable change ever happens, then the most reasonable explanation is it will never work. Sticking to methodological naturalism rather than falling prey to a medicine of the gaps explanation for things helps prevent very important pitfalls in medicine. For example, Deepak Chopra and Andrew Weil, who are two very popular, somewhat mainstream alternative medicine gurus, took issue with a piece recently published in the uh, Wall Street Journal health blogs section. 
and I'll give you a link to some of the information regarding this little dust-up. But one of the most important parts of this was not the actual points they made, but the fact that they joined forces with known uber-crank doctor, and I say that in quotes, Gary Null, who isn't actually a doctor, but feels he knows more than the entire scientific community when he says that HIV does not cause AIDS. So the so-called mainstream alternatives like Chopra and Weil join forces with a wacko HIV denialist like Null because once you're willing to abandon the natural world in treating natural problems, which of course are the only kind of problems there are, you're willing to pretty much accept anything. Once you say to yourself, well, there are some things that we can't measure, can't observe, can't explain, well, at that point, you've pretty much drunk the Kool-Aid, and no idea is too fantastical to be acceptable. That, dear listener, is unacceptable when treating real patients. You can write about it all day in philosophy books, you can sit over coffee and argue about it with your friends in front of a fire, but when you're sitting in an exam room with a patient and recommending treatments to somebody who needs you, it is not acceptable. And I guess it's really no coincidence that I brought this up, because I got into it a little bit on the webs with a uh, noted, let's say, alternative thinker. His name is Dr. Michael Egnor, and he's a neurosurgeon out east somewhere. And he's become a real darling of the Discovery Institute, that so-called scientific institute that complains that reality doesn't conform to their seven-day idea of creation. His big thing is what he calls non-materialist neuroscience, in which he falls back on a old, old, old saw of mind does not equal body. This certainly seems odd for a neurosurgeon, someone who can quite literally change someone's mind with the cut of a scalpel. But he truly believes that the meat inside the skull is not enough to explain what we call mind. Now, to explain what we call mind, he doesn't invoke one of the four forces of nature that we know of, electromagnetism, gravity, weak nuclear, strong nuclear. He simply says that there must be some sort of spirit. This is where we fall into the medicine of the gaps explanation, which is really just a god of the gaps explanation. Don't understand something? God did it. And while God may or may not have done it, it's irrelevant to the study of human medicine. If something happens that you can't observe and can't explain, then something didn't happen. If you can't see a mind, can't feel a mind, can't touch a mind, can't affect a mind, except by touching a brain, then mind is an epiphenomenon of brain. So let's review. There are basically three types of medicine. That which has been proved, that which might possibly, reasonably, or plausibly be proved, and that which is not provable because it makes no darn sense. And why do things fall into the third category? Because they don't follow any natural laws. And why do we care whether something follows natural laws? Because that's the only thing we know. And why do I think the people who advocate these things are disingenuous at best? Because they often claim that their special kind of knowledge is not testable or measurable, which is clearly a lie, because they measure it every day when they say it makes the patient feel better. If you're going to claim that there's an effect, then you must invoke a reason for that effect. You must measure that effect in some way. And you must have some sort of reasonable explanation as to why that effect happened. You're not allowed to say, mm, my science doesn't follow the rules, 
Don't ask me. I'm asking you. And I'm still waiting for an answer. Now, I was going to call it quits here, but there's one issue where the alternative medicine people often score a lot of points. They say, you know, you people who are all such materialists, you don't have compassion. You don't care about the patient. Of course, this is bullshit. I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? A physician who knows their stuff, who examines the evidence, who sits in a room with a patient and holds their hand, and who tells a patient honestly, I don't know how to fix your condition, and then who fails to recommend some sort of magic that also won't fix their condition, that person has plenty of compassion. I would argue that they have a lot more compassion than the physician or other healer who looks at the patient and with a straight face says, well, I can't cure you with conventional medicine, but we can try manipulating your energy fields. I'm sorry, to me, that's not compassion. That's false compassion. Those of us who are in the trenches every day, taking care of real people, know the difference. And honestly, doctors are often accused of playing God, or at least thinking they're God. And while there's perhaps some truth to that, the ones who really play God are the alternative medicine gurus. How do I know they're playing God? Who's the only one who has access to the supernatural? Who's the only one who can perform magic and miracles? It's certainly not a doctor. So I'll say it right here. I'm not a God. I'm not a miracle worker. I'm a doctor, not a deity. And with that, I guess I will leave it. But I will tell you that all the links that I want you to check out will be available at whitecoatunderground.com slash forum under the podcast for discussion. That is, until I give up completely on the forums and post it at Denialism Blog instead. So, have a great week, and I will talk to you next time.